0: Welcome to another episode of On Becoming. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. Before we get started, don't forget that On Becoming has a presence on Twitter at On Becoming Pod and Instagram at On Becoming Podcast. Please send your questions, your comments, or suggestions for the podcast to Podcast at gmail.com. I'm particularly interested in hearing about your own experiences growing up evangelical. If any of what I've been saying resonates with you, I invite you to support the podcast on Patreon. The web address is patreon.com onbecomingpodcast, but you can also access it through Twitter at onbecomingpod. I've mentioned that there are various levels of support possible, The lowest is Friend of the Pod, and then it goes up from there, Student of the Academy, Philosopher in Training, Disillusioned Scholar, and Overachiever. You can find all of those on Patreon. I have to confess, I'm not particularly comfortable talking about money, particularly asking for money. For those of you who are former students, I'm delighted that you've chosen to hear more, and... If possible, it would be great if you'd head over to the Patreon page. For those of you who have just discovered this podcast, I invite you to consider supporting the podcast, too. If you know anything about podcasts, then you'll probably know that, yes, podcasts do cost money and quite a lot of time to make. But now I feel like I'm doing an NPR fun drive, um, because basically it's more or less the same thing. I'm hoping that you're finding the podcast personally valuable and are interested in supporting it. Unlike NPR, I don't have any funding from the Ford Foundation or any of the other FEN funders that they mention. And though people like Jim Baker or Jim, Joel Austin promise that if you give until it hurts, God will give you even more. Sorry, I can't make that promise. Back when I lived in Texas, I enjoyed listening to the very edges of the a.m. dial, particularly late in the evening. There were so many ministries pleading for money that it sounded something like this. My radio friend, if you don't send money to this ministry, we're going to go off the air. I'll stop there. Or you, I think, get the basic idea. So I'd prefer not to do that. <laughs> If you've listened to the previous episode, you already know a good deal about cults, what they are, how they're defined, various things like that. If you haven't listened to that episode, let me encourage you to stop here and to go back and listen to it. There's a good deal of preparatory material that addresses what cults are and also how we tend to think about them. Perhaps the most important takeaway from that discussion is the following we assume that cults are obvious and generally weird, which, of course, makes them obvious. But the reality is not as clear-cut as that. Cults are not necessarily so obvious or even so weird. In the episode on the tech firms of Silicon Valley, we saw that a highly competent religion scholar labels these firms cults, and provides extensive analysis and interviews with employees to back up that claim. Today we'll be examining the idea of milieu control, and we'll see that such control is evident in different ways, including ways you might not expect. In the episode on the tech cults, we didn't talk about milieu control, or at least we didn't do so in those terms. But milieu control is central to the way these Silicon Valley companies operate. We talked about the fact that, for instance, food, high quality food, is readily accessible to many tech employees, often whenever they want it. But depending on the company, employees may never need to leave the compound. Oh, sorry, I meant building. There are places where you can curl up for a nap or you can play games. And there are many other ways to entertain yourself. Facebook is planning on building a neighborhood for its employees that would include shops and restaurants. Imagine that. You could work during the day at Facebook and then sleep at night at Facebook Village. Yeah, that's probably not going to be the real name. They're probably going to find a name that sounds more authentic. As far as I can tell, such a community isn't designed so that employees are required to live there. But if you can get convenient modern accommodation from your employer at a good price, why would you want to go on the open market and pay the exorbitant house prices that are the norm in Silicon Valley? I've made reference to the Netflix show Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, which depicts young women locked in a bunker. The show's opening is the SWAT team freeing everyone. However, that particular cult was the result of a leader kidnapping these young women. I'm sure that has happened, unless maybe even continues to happen. But note that the show virtually expects you to think, oh, good, they're being freed from the terrible cult leader. What if instead the SWAT team got there and everyone said, no, we're doing just fine. We kind of like it down here. We, we don't want to leave. That's what I'm talking about. In the case of being locked in a bunker, milieu control is pretty easy and pretty obvious. But what about people who are, at least ostensibly, free to come and go? I stay ostensibly because, probably like working at a tech company, you really aren't free to show up just whenever you like. In fact, in many work situations, dominate, uh, documented by Chen's book, People talk about how they don't feel free to leave, to go on vacation, or to go home early because people would notice. Here we're talking about highly trained, highly paid professionals who have the sense that their choices are still limited. When you think about milieu control, it's more helpful to have this second kind of idea in mind. The idea that people are generally happy to stay within the cult milieu than the first one in which people are all trying to escape. Indeed, if all cult members were trying to escape, don't you think this would be just a completely unmanageable situation? One of the most significant aspects of cults is that people generally join them on their own free will or are born into them. I've used the phrase free will, and for the time being, let's just stick with that. I've never heard of an evangelical organization controlling its followers by keeping them on a compound. But that's not to say that evangelical organizations don't have something like compounds, in the same way that Facebook has something like a compound. Evangelicals tend to create worlds, really one big united world, in which one can move from one evangelical environment to another. As a way of getting at this point, consider the location of evangelical colleges. Many of them are located away from the urban atmosphere, and that's fully intentional. Of course, it's also important to realize that evangelicals are not alone in creating built educational environments that are located away from the harms of the big city. Penn State University is in University Park, a place that is a very, very long way away from virtually anything else. Similarly, Texas A&M University is located in College Station, Texas. But location is just one aspect of milieu control. Much more important are those expectations of the students at such places. In an important sense, these schools are designed to be like Facebook, in a particular sense, namely that they are designed to provide just about everything you could need. I've studied and taught at universities where housing is difficult to find and expensive if you can find it. Most students are only able to find off-campus housing in situations like that. But evangelical schools often have enough dorm rooms For the majority of students and often require that students attending the school live in the dormitory this is usually justified as part of the college experience and i think that's actually correct part of the evangelical college experience is the experience of being immersed in the place in the case of evangelical colleges students are normally required to live in dormitories in their first couple of years If they win the lottery, no not that lottery, the the housing lottery, then they're given the privilege of living in college apartments. A few lucky souls might be allowed to live off-campus during their senior year. Now, Dormitories in evangelical schools usually have strict rules. There's usually a curfew. Members of the opposite sex are allowed to visit, but only during very restricted times. During such visits, The door must never be shut. There's also the rule that there must be three feet on the floor at all times. I'll let you think about that for a little bit. And then there is the RA, the resident assistant, who is there to make sure everything is okay. I've had a number of students who served as resident assistants, and one of the things that's become clear from talking to them is that RAs are definitely there to make sure the rules are enforced. That's not to say your RA couldn't be your buddy. But if it came down to whether the RA is going to side with you or with the college administration, I'd bet with the administration in most cases. Living in a dorm is probably something that most students would benefit from doing, though I'd rather be in Europe than the U.S. for this. Part of the American higher educational experience is having a roommate, usually someone assigned to you often assigned to you with a specific intent in mind. A roommate that was assigned to me was a guy who probably could not have been more unlike me, and of course we immediately figured out that that was why we had been put together. He was an outdoorsy kind of person who loved to camp and go hiking. Let's just say that doesn't exactly describe me. If anything, the kind of thing I'd want to do. I've read about these book tours that you can do in Europe and other places. The company supplies the bikes. You ride them at a comfortable pace with your group during the day, and then you stop at a luxury B&B in the evening and have a Michelin star meal. That's exactly how I'd like to camp. (laughs) By the way, in Europe, they don't usually give you a roommate. Usually you have the room to yourself. I've always wondered if the American practice of having a roommate was just a matter of cost or whether there really was a desire to inflict someone on you when you first arrive that would turn your world upside down. In thinking about milieu control, it's helpful to keep in mind that the most effective way of controlling an environment is to get the people who are part of the community to think in the ways that the community desires. Getting people on board emotionally and intellectually is how communities create and maintain their identities. I've often made the point that most people don't follow rules that they don't think make sense. For instance, consider how many people speed on the highways. If there's a cop around, that slows everyone down. But most people are quite content to speed as long as they think they'll get away with it. Keep in mind, they're not thinking... I'm driving way too fast. I'll probably have an accident. Instead, they're thinking probably something like this. 55 miles an hour seems way too slow on this huge, nearly deserted highway. But this kind of thinking is a little foreign to the evangelical world. First, evangelicals tend to be good rule followers. That's a key part of being an evangelical. Second, These rules get internalized so that you become the one who is self-censoring. There is no need to enforce a rule if people are already forcing themselves to follow it. Of course, the internalization of the rules also represents a disruption to the balance between the self and the rest of the world. Such a move can threaten an appropriate level of uh, autonomy. Third, this internalization is so effective that there's a strong incentive to turn in those not following the rules. Unfortunately, that aspect reminds me of the KGB or the Stasi in East Germany. Many East Germans, for instance, were able to get favors or advance their careers by becoming informants, turning in their neighbors. Being a narc in the evangelical world is a good way to get ahead. It shows that you're on the side of the authorities, and it wins you points. One narc I know was able to parlay that into a deanship. However, the most effective narc is one who simply can't live with himself or someone else breaking the rules. The milieu control of evangelicalism is highly dependent upon such self-righteousness being rewarded. In case you're wondering why I i am using the term self-righteousness, I don't think the system could work without it. If I observe someone not following the rules, I immediately make the judgment that I'm superior to this person because, well, I am following the rules. Such a system will almost inevitably create a sense of tears of righteousness, and such feelings easily translate into self-righteousness. If you know anything about evangelicalism, you realize that it has a fondness for rules. Why? Well, I think there are several reasons. One is simply that evangelicals have long thought that most of what we call culture is best avoided. That was reflected in the rules about attending movies and plays. Evangelical culture has largely moved on from this, but it wasn't that long ago that evangelical college students were not allowed to go to movies or stage plays. Part of this was due to an antipathy toward Hollywood. Fundamentalists and then evangelicals made the point that Hollywood stood against virtually everything that evangelicals cared about. Now, if you think about it, this is kind of a strange claim. The movies that appeared from the 1920s on, say, to the 1970s, were very strictly censored for anything not considered wholesome. A famous philosopher makes the point that his father learned all he needed to know about morality by watching American westerns. But, of course, the alternative part is that Hollywood itself hardly lived by those norms. In effect, Hollywood presented two very different realities, the one on the screen and the one on the gossip pages. Just to be clear, that was a blanket prohibition. No movies were okay. No plays were okay. Yes, I can almost hear the response, namely, but aren't there any good films or plays we're seeing? Surely there had to be some allowance for the worthwhile films. Yeah, that makes sense, but yeah, there wasn't any such allowance. That just didn't figure into the whole situation. Of course, there were student productions of plays, but these were very closely monitored by the authorities. As you can probably guess, many plays simply couldn't be performed since they were way too far outside the evangelical orbit with stories way too far removed from the world that evangelicals assume to be the case. But even the plays that at least in principle could be formed often needed some cleaning up. You may have noticed that from time to time certain bad words appear in plays. George Carlin had a comic routine in which he talked about the seven words that you couldn't say on TV or in a film or on the radio. And needless to say, I can't say what those seven words are in this podcast, though I suspect your imagination may be sufficient. If you're feeling less inspired at the moment, you can always just Google it. But again, it was not merely a question of what words could be said. It was also a question of what could be presented. The simplest way of putting this would be to say that the stories needed to be redemptive. In other words, they had had to end with some kind of salvation or redemption. I remember when I first realized this point, it was actually the result of speaking with one of the people who oversaw the student productions. And when I came to this realization, it worried me greatly. For the problem is is that many things that happen to us in life are not redeemable. I realize that stories are a way of escaping from the world. But stories still need to be at least somewhat believable. Now, in terms of redemption, you might, for instance, break a limb. And this might result in you having a cast for six weeks. And it might be possible, that being in a cast gets you thinking about your usual mobility, and then causes you to be thankful that you can move, and also you get a better idea of what it's like to live with a handicap. I've chosen this example because, while it's possible that such a situation causes you to be more aware of the pain of others around you and appreciate your own mobility, it's entirely possible that it doesn't have that effect on you at all. Perhaps you just become an angry person, angry that this thing has befallen you. Yet at least an example like this could have a redemptive aspect. In contrast, there are many aspects that could potentially happen where the redemptive element isn't evident and perhaps the event can't be redeemed in any meaningful sense. Indeed, one of the truly terrible parts about suffering, whether it's human suffering or animal suffering, is that it often bears no particular fruit. It's just suffering. And that's what so bothered me about this requirement that a play needed to have a redemptive element. Life is full of things that are not easily redeemed. I think it's better to have that clarified than to act as if all things can be redeemed. Perhaps those in charge thought that students needed a positive message, but I suspect that this expectation is also part of the whole evangelical embrace of suffering as something meaningful and important. You might wonder how and why suffering would be embraced in this way. The simplest answer is that the New Testament speaks very highly of suffering. Here's a passage that makes that clear. Consider pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may become mature and complete, not lacking anything. That's from the book of James. Now, first, this seems to be a statement about the testing of one's faith. So it's hard to see this as a blanket acceptance of suffering. Second, while testing someone's faith may produce perseverance, alas, it doesn't necessarily have that effect. There's no guarantee that suffering can be redeemed. However, this problem is, I think, connected to the whole embrace of the narrative of suffering for the Lord. In case you think I'm making that up, I've heard that very phrase used in a very serious sense and also used as humor. It's actually a very convenient thing to think. I'm suffering, and thus I'm becoming complete. I'm doing this for Jesus. But maybe you're just suffering, and it doesn't have some obvious purpose. As I write these words, I can already anticipate a pious response. Maybe God is allowing you to suffer in some evangelical versions, it would be God is actually causing you to suffer. And you're just not able to see that yet. Anyone who suggests that I may not be able to understand God's purposes is certainly going in the right direction. But as you can probably guess, to make such a statement implies that the person making it can understand or understand enough to justify the suffering. And This is where things get really difficult, since none of us can really make any claims like this. True, I could never argue in any given instance of pain or suffering that it wasn't somehow beneficial. Such a claim requires knowledge that I may not have. But I think this is knowledge that no one has, so it's hard to see any such claim going anywhere. And just to be clear, I'm also not in the position to say that no benefit came about from suffering. That would require information that I simply don't have. Now, I don't want to dwell too much on rules and restrictions, but it's important to see that they have a crucial function in keeping control. Besides not being able to go to movies or plays, students were also not allowed to use playing cards. The face cards are somehow connected to evil or the devil. At least that's the explanation that people give. I should point out that faculty and staff were required to follow these rules too. In fact, faculty and staff actually had it worse than students. Where students could do whatever they wanted during the breaks, employees got no such dispensation. In fact, it wasn't until... 2003 that the rules were changed so that faculty and staff were officially allowed to, well, among other things, drink alcohol. That's only 20 years ago. And then there's dancing. As hard as it might be to believe, only square dancing was allowed. All other forms of social dancing were forbidden. I realize that this sounds pretty crazy. Definitely milieu control going on. But husbands and wives were also not permitted to dance together in the privacy of their own homes. In other words, the rule against dancing was against dancing in any form, in any place. These rules were such that there were no exceptions. You might think that a faculty member, a faculty couple could go to some faraway place, I don't know, a remote island, and be able to dance together. But you'd be wrong in thinking that. The rules applied wherever you were. I hope that point helps you realize that any organization that wants to promote its values always does this best by getting people to police themselves. I have what I think is a good illustration of milieu control coming from my time as a high school student. My parents made a point of choosing a church that would have a good youth group, and that turned out to be the case. There was a woman in the church who had a large house, a property that included a tennis court and a swimming pool, She was a truly, truly lovely person, and I have to say I feel privileged that I got to know her. In effect, the high school group met at her house every Wednesday and Sunday evenings. If you've never had a group come to your house, especially twice a week, you probably don't realize just what a sacrifice that would be. Since my family moved away from there around the time I started college, I don't have connections to anyone from that part of my life. And I feel sad about that, because it was a good group of people, and I certainly felt welcome there. I have fond memories of playing around the world ping pong, hanging out at the pool, and even playing tennis. What interested me, even at the time, was that the experience was very similar to young life. It was built around fun. There were, to be sure, more serious times, but those were only a part of the total experience. Looking back, I'm extremely thankful for having this community at church. The reality was that this was my community. Although I attended high school during the day, I didn't see that as part of my community. And here's where things get a little difficult. Did I benefit from being part of this loving and caring community? Oh, entirely so. In fact, I can't think of anything negative about the experience as a whole. But I've also come to realize that choosing the youth group over possible connections at high school was the result for me. None of us can go back in life and replay a different scenario, so I can't say that my life would have been fuller or better if I had been more involved in high school, but my guess is that that might have been the case. Further, I want to make it clear that I attended these Wednesday and Sunday evenings out of my own free will. While there were definitely Sunday mornings where I would have much preferred to stay in bed, these events were highly attractive. My only point then is this. It's interesting that the church would create a system in which one's social life revolved around the church. You might say, oh, they're not trying to control the milieu. But I think they are please understand that I'm not remotely suggesting that there's some nefarious plan to keep the church high schoolers separate from the events at high school. For instance, it wasn't if the church had events for high schoolers on Friday night, because of course that was the night for high school football, and any attempt to keep students and their parents away from the game would have been futile. I can still remember when the church decided to cancel the evening service because, well, the Dallas Cowboys were playing the Super Bowl and the pastors realized that the Texas audience was going to vote with their feet and they were not going to be at church. There is, as you probably know, a long and complicated history of the relationship between evangelical Christianity and American football, but I'm going to bypass that aspect for now. But That's something I'd like to come back to. My The point, though, here is this. The evangelical world has gone to great lengths to create worlds in which evangelicals can exist without a great deal of contact with the world. I've mentioned evangelical colleges, but evangelical churches, particularly those of the megachurch variety, are also in in, in the business of creating a controlled environment. For instance, back in high school, there was always a celebration of the church on New Year's Eve in the gym. It was so obviously an evangelical replacement for the secular New Year's Eve party that no one needed an explanation. Again, it's hard to see something wrong with this. But it does count as milieu control. Megachurches often refer to their physical buildings as the campus, That language is fully appropriate because many churches attempt to create something like what one would experience at an evangelical college. True, there are no dormitories, but many of the other features of colleges are there. A gym, perhaps a climbing wall, a playground, a nursery, a cafeteria, a coffee shop, a bookshop. Given this setup, it's not hard to see people deciding to spend multiple hours in this environment particularly if they can do so with their families. Now, among some evangelicals, there is a kind of fear of associating with unsaved people, since such people might shake one's faith or cause one to think questionable thoughts. It's entirely possible, then, to limit your friends to those from church, to send your kids to evangelical schools from kindergarten through college and even up through some graduate schools. And, of course, to have your political views formed by your pastor or or other evangelical leader. You can live your entire life in the evangelical bubble, including getting your car serviced by a fellow evangelical. Years ago, friends of mine expressed that they simply didn't know any other people who weren't evangelicals. I say that because I can imagine someone thinking, surely it's not as insular as all that. But that would be to miss what's going on here no one is forcing evangelicals to associate with other evangelicals. Instead, it's happening very smoothly and effortlessly. Of course, there's an important factor at work here. Evangelicals identify themselves and one another on the basis of setting up a barrier between themselves and what's called the world. I've not mentioned that, at least in one passage, Paul sounds like philosophy is somehow to blame. He says, watch out that no one takes you captive through philosophy. In my first book, I spent quite a bit of time examining what Paul means here, but anyone just reading such a passage is probably going to think less of philosophy. Yes, in the evangelical world, there is a general animus towards philosophy, and everything that is also unclean, ungodly. And counts as man's wisdom. What do we call worldly knowledge if if it seems reasonable? Ah, the answer is temptation. From my earliest years I can remember hearing about false prophets who lead people astray. This quotation comes about from the first letter of John. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God for many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. There's a lot going on in this passage, but the part that's most important is the one that talks about those not confessing Jesus as being from God. My own interpretation of this passage is that it's highly restricted in nature. One is instructed to test not everything, but only that which is prophetic, which would leave out a lot of things. However, it's not hard to see that a casual reading of this text could lead one to think the world is divided up between that which confesses Jesus and that which doesn't. And then it doesn't require much further reasoning to think that we should stay away from everything which doesn't affirm Jesus directly. But of course, if we go with that hermeneutic, then a lot of what we call culture is at war with Jesus and the gospel. Such a dichotomy is very hard to live out in practice. If the world is bad, is there anything acceptable out there for an evangelical? Are evangelicals allowed to live in the world? We talked about banning movies, plays, and playing cards. What about watching television or reading the newspaper or a magazine? Now, at this point in time, evangelicals have relaxed quite a bit in regard to such things. And it's interesting looking back because I can remember in the early 1990s, there was a prominent sociologist who did a piece on the evangelical movement And the school where I was teaching at the time was very prominently featured. And the person writing the article was pointing out that the world was, certainly then and even more now, being influenced by evangelicals. In a previous podcast, I mentioned Jimmy Carter, but many people thought of Ronald Reagan as a committed Christian. And the 80s were a time when evangelicals became particularly strong. It was possible back then to think that the milieu control could be extended to include the world outside of Christianity. The most obvious way in which that control has been extended is the recent Dobbs decision. Judging from what evangelicals are saying, many of them would like to see that influence extend more broadly. Here I'm talking about the move towards Christian theocracy, an idea that has been around for a while, but now has gained more adherence. Only a few days ago, I came across a quote from Francis Schaefer. Francis Schaefer is the person I mentioned, I think, in the previous episode, who was highly influential in the change in evangelical attitudes regarding abortion. But what I discovered was that as far back as the 1960s, Schaefer was already advocating that Christians needed to change the laws of the United States to reflect their Christian values. If you're following what's going on in the United States at the moment, you'll realize that evangelicals see themselves on a roll, as in, this might just be the beginning. Perhaps that will turn out to be correct, though that's an issue for a very different episode. What particularly struck me, though, about this article on evangelicals back from the early 90s was that the author suggested that as much as evangelicals were eager to change culture, culture would end up changing them far more than they would succeed in changing the culture around them. That prediction was made exactly 30 years ago, and I think it was pressing it evangelicalism has been changed by culture much more than it has been an age of change for culture. Note that I've been talking as if the pressure to conform might be coming from the church. But as we've noted, fellow evangelicals often take it upon themselves to police other people. There's still something stronger at work here, though. If you grow up in evangelicalism, It's the only world you know. You are told quite a lot of things about those other people, the worldly people. And you're told that their lives are hopeless. That's an important part of being socialized by the evangelical world. Now, of course, one can make the much more general point that children are going to be socialized one way or the other. It's this point that makes me very wary of speaking of indoctrination, which seems to have negative connotations no matter how well you qualify it or explain it. Non-religious people sometimes accuse religious people of indoctrinating their children. But if teaching a kid about the world counts as indoctrination, well, then every parent is in the business of indoctrination. Here, there's an important point. Children can be indoctrinated in the sense that they are told, this is the way things are, without leaving any room for questions or wondering if maybe in fact things might be different. The more that dynamic is at work, the more that dynamic of this is the way things are, the more early education ends up being like indoctrination. If you think about it, there are all kinds of ways that parents can qualify the things that they say. Still, the framework that evangelicals give their children is generally not very expensive. There is a very strong sense of us versus them. Note that this kind of thinking proves to be an important part of milieu control. Children are taught that the world out there is a nasty place. It is, alas, extremely common in evangelical circles to be given a pretty stark choice. You can either choose to accept Jesus as your personal savior or you can join the forces of the world that lead to perdition. In at least one previous podcast, we've talked about the fact that human beings are, to use Emile Durkheim's language, homo duplex. He puts it like this. Far from being simple, our inner life has something like that of a double center of gravity. On the one hand is our individuality, and more particularly our body in which it is based. On the other hand is everything in us that expresses something other than ourselves. Not only are these two groups of states of consciousness different in their origins and their properties, but there is a true antagonism between them. They mutually contradict and deny each other. Now, there is very much going on in this short passage. So here I simply want to point out for the moment that we humans, while we tend towards individualism, are also fundamentally connected to other people via the family, the church, the state, and of course all the other ways in which people connect. We have a strong desire for family, which may be a literal family, or it may be the family that we create that we call friends. The evangelical community is first and foremost about belonging to an exclusive community, those who are in versus those who are out. In this respect, it's kind of elitist. If you're considered to be a child of God, then guess what? You become more important. Given certain Calvinist doctrines that are found in evangelicalism, you might decide that you're a member of the elect, the people whom God chose before the creation of the world. You can see how being chosen in this sense could give you a sense of having privilege. To be sure, the accompanying doctrine that goes with the election story is simply that God chose some people and didn't choose others. That's the mild and the more palatable version of predestination. There's another version, though. It's called double predestination, in which God doesn't merely choose to save certain people. He also expressly chooses to make sure that some people go to hell. It gets worse than that. I remember being at a conference on free will and predestination. One of my colleagues, though in a different department, got up and said the following to the person who had just given a talk that waffled a bit, but basically endorsed predestination. This guy said, You shouldn't say that God merely permitted such a person to sin. You should say that God caused him to sin and then punished him for sinning. To be honest, when he said that, I simply thought, this is crazy talk. God makes you do evil and then holds you responsible for what he did? If this is really how God operates, then I'll keep my distance. As I say, the evangelical world is very elitist. If you're in, we love you. If you're out, we hate you. Evangelicals might say, hate the sin, but love the sinner, but that's mainly to make sinners feel just a little better. But the evangelical cult is embodied in its lifestyles largely about fear. At its heart, the clear message is one of us versus them the true believers against the world. Back when I was growing up, the main enemy was communism. Communists were atheists, and of course, that's all you really need to know. In the 1950s and 60s, enough people went to church in the U.S. to make it seem plausible that there really was something like a Christian America versus the godless Soviet Union. It's interesting that back then evangelicals spoke of the American way of life, by which they meant the godly capitalism and freedom of religion. But then communism started to wane, church attendance started dropping, and suddenly evangelicals needed a new cause. Randall Balmer, himself a graduate of the institution where my father was a vice president, has made the case that evangelicals coalesced in the wake of the civil rights movement. Granting civil rights to African Americans was scary to evangelicals, it made them feel threatened. Interestingly enough, many African-Americans who self-identify as Christians hold doctrines that are similar to those of evangelicals, but they don't usually use the term evangelical to describe themselves. I've already spoken of white evangelicals, but it should be clear that that's just redundancy. Put a different way, people of color are not particularly welcome at evangelical churches. It would be way too simple, and it would be very unfair to dismiss evangelicals as simply racist. But the reality is that most evangelical churches are extremely white, and racial minorities often feel uncomfortable being part of those communities. I remember an African-American student who told me that being there at the white college was a mission. She was there to help the white, upper-middle-class students understand the realities of being black in the United States. While evangelicals might grant certain specific actions as racist, they do not see, and alas, have been trained by their pastors not to see, the deep structural problem of racism in American history. Been speaking of Merleau control, as accomplished from the outside, there are structures in place, literal, physical structures, called churches, for instance, that provide control over the milieu. But an even more effective way of controlling a milieu is by taking over the inner life or thoughts of a person. When I censor myself, then milieu control is fully effective. Of course, one of the problems, even in talking about such a situation, is determining the sense to which milieu control has already been so effective that asking questions now is difficult. What kinds of things does milieu control keep me from seeing? To what extent does milieu control control me so much that I am not able to see the control? My point is that even when we try to go back to our early experiences to make sense of them, We are never fully aware of the kinds of things that we now take so much for granted that it's difficult and perhaps even impossible for us to see them. In other words, this isn't an easy task. And that's why we're devoting a number of episodes to these questions regarding the possible cultish aspects of evangelicalism. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis-Benson. You've been listening to Unbecoming. If you're liking what you're hearing, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. Thanks. <laughs>